What is a melody? A melody is just a series of notes. And each note can be represented by a different frequency in terms of how the sound waves are hitting your ear. The relationship between different notes is all very, very precise and very mathematical. So the real question is, why are so many musicians opposed to the idea of using math and science to write their melodies? Welcome to Everyone Special and No One Is. My name is Martin Chazella, and this episode is the next episode in the series where I talk about my story throughout music, from the rock band to the saxophone looping performances to quitting high school to writing a song that took me 350 hours to write to applying to college to getting rejected from the Belmont songwriting program three times before I finally got accepted on my fourth attempt. So this is the continuation of that, and the subject that I want to focus on mainly in this episode is melodic math, but there's a lot that I have to like fill in the gaps before I get to the melodic math part of the story. So I'm just going to continue telling the story, picking up where we left off with I had just finally gotten accepted to the Belmont University songwriting program, and what led up to that... um, Just as a general disclaimer off the top, melodic math, if you Google that, you will find a lot of articles and YouTube videos talking about Max Martin and his secret to songwriting success. Max Martin is a Swedish songwriter. He has several hits with many notable artists that you would recognize. Um, He is sometimes thought of as like the ultimate mastermind of crafting the perfect pop song. And... I have not done enough research to say this with 100% certainty, but I believe that the term melodic math was popularized in the book um, by John Seabrook, who's a journalist. He wrote a book called The Song Machine, Inside the Hit Factory, and that was published in 2015. And in that book, he basically interviews a bunch of songwriters, uh, one of them being Max Martin, who is obviously notorious for writing so many hit songs, like I just said. And he has this one part in the book where he's like quoting something that another songwriter was saying about the way that Max Martin writes, and he called it melodic math. And so if you go on Google, and if you look at the trends for how people have been searching for the phrase melodic math, There were, like, it kind of existed in, like, 2012, but really when people started searching for melodic math on Google was February 2016 and onward. So uh, I think that's pretty safe to say that the phrase melodic math was popularized in this book where Max Martin is interviewed, but again, it's not really coming from an interview of him. And even in subsequent interviews, long after the book was published, Max Martin will say things like, oh yeah, like so many things that people say about me on the internet is not even true and not about the way I write songs. Um, Why is this important? I just want to clarify that when I say melodic math in the context of this podcast, I am not referring to the Max Martin School of Songwriting. I am referring to my own method that I used to literally use mathematics to 
construct and build together melodies. And I am not at all saying that I am on par with Max Martin. That would be extremely arrogant. I'm also not at all saying that this method was inspired by Max Martin because it is also not. I think that the phrase melodic math in itself is a really useful phrase just to describe like a super overly analytical way of thinking about writing songs and specifically writing melodies and fitting those melodies with those lyrics. I think that it's useful as that kind of a term and it shouldn't necessarily be exclusively linked to this one person. But anyway, with that all out of the way, um, I'm going to jump into my story. Uh, we will be getting to the melodic math bit later. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. But just to continue from where we left off, because I was accepted into the Belmont Songwriting Program in December of 2017, I was able to actually get into a songwriting class that coming spring semester. So I took some music business classes and I took some general education classes, including a philosophy class, which was really fascinating. But I was also able to take Introduction to Commercial Songwriting. Now, this class is only available, or at least at the time when I was a student, I'm not sure if this has changed or not, but it was only available for students who were in the songwriting program, which means that you had to have been accepted into the songwriting major to take any of these songwriting-specific classes. Anyway, uh, so I took this introduction class. We just met once a week for eight weeks. It was only worth one credit, but it was really, really amazing to just be able to go into this class and to be able to talk about songwriting and to share my songs with other songwriters and get feedback from various people on that. Like, it just felt like such an honor to finally, after so long, after trying to get into this program, it's like, I did it. I'm here. I made it. This is the best thing ever. I can't believe this is really happening. Even just being able to go to the songwriting building, which is like a separate building, like kind of off the road from the main Belmont campus, and to just go into that room, which like used to be a music business like executive room, and apparently there were like famous artists that sat around that very same table and sat in the same chairs that we were sitting in. That was absolutely crazy. And it was really nice because I was actually carpooling to that class. I didn't have my own car at the time. So I was carpooling to that class with a friend of mine who had also been trying to get into the songwriting program for a really long time. I think she also made it in on her fourth attempt, just like I did. So it was like, <laughs> we were very much in the same place and both felt equally amazed that we got in and that we were able to appreciate just being there and being part of that program. Um, and this was not that person, but also in the class was Kate Cosentino, who I was, who I interviewed on the previous episode of this podcast. And I didn't know her that well at the time, but it was just cool to be surrounded by so many amazing songwriters and to get a chance, like I said, to show our songs to people. So specifically, who did we show our songs to? Well, each other, the professors, and twice within the eight-week period of the class, they brought in music business professionals to judge our songs and to give us feedback. And this is not exactly the point of having music business people come in, but it is very much considered to be a possible benefit that, you know, hey, if 
so-and-so manager comes and they listen to your song in this class and they like it, they could potentially sign a deal with you. They could choose to develop you as a songwriter and or as an artist. And that's like the dream. (laughs) So it's like, wow, okay, I get accepted into the songwriting program and then immediately I have opportunities to pitch my music to real industry gatekeepers? Like, what is happening? This is crazy. Um, It was just, I was constantly in awe about everything. (laughs) So the very first music business person that we presented our songs to was actually the manager of this famous DJ from Germany. And he was looking for artists that he could possibly develop to get his producers to work with and, you know, turn out more dance hits. He wanted to do that. And um, he was also there with someone who was a former Belmont graduate who was now his business partner, and they were both jointly giving feedback on our songs. And I actually volunteered to go first that time, which was probably a mistake, but I took very detailed notes on the feedback they gave. So I showed my song, Shut Your Mouth and Do Your Job, because that is the song that I did in collaboration with Chase Flint, my friend who's an EDM artist. And I was like, oh, well, obviously, if it's an EDM manager who's coming to this session, clearly he'll want to hear the song of mine that's mostly EDM, which is why I picked that song to share. And according to my notes, which I still have, um, I'm just going to read back my notes. This is probably not like verbatim what they said, but it's probably very, very close because as they were doing the session, I was typing very rapidly on my computer so that I could try and get down everything that they said. So anyway, here are my notes on their reaction to this song. You can tell it's a beginner's song. The production is really throwback. It sounds like 15 years ago when the people in Europe were mimicking the sound of dance music in America. And then in my notes, I have in parentheses, that's not a good thing. (laughs) Then my notes go on. He's just not really a fan of the chords. And the singing is really harsh. So basically, they didn't have a whole lot of positive things to say about the song, which sucks because I spent over 250 hours writing it. (laughs) And yeah, it was just like shocking, like, because I obviously felt so confident in the song and I'd spent so much time working at it and I felt like I had good reactions from the people who I showed it to, but all of a sudden you get this big shot music business manager in the room and he just doesn't care for it at all and neither does his partner like and then there there were mixed reactions to the other songs that the other students shared um in that session but generally it seemed like they reacted a lot better to everyone else's songs than they did for me i don't know if that was partially because i was the first one on the chopping block because i volunteered to go first <laughs> or what but Ah, it it was it was kind of shocking. Like, okay, no, I am obviously not getting like a songwriting deal out of this. <laughs> obviously nothing like that 
is happening, but at least it's a learning experience. So the next time that a music business person came to give us feedback, and the only other time in that class that this happened, uh, it was somebody who worked at a really big publishing company. Um, one of the affiliates of the major record labels actually came to our class and to give us feedback. And so this time it's not just like some random manager who has definitely some success, but this time it's like somebody who's representing an entire company that has success with so many different artists and songwriters. And I'm like, wow. Okay. So this is like, this is a really, really big deal. Um, I, the song that I chose to present this time was my song, So, which was the song that I spent 350 hours writing, and it was also the song that I submitted the first time for my Belmont application and didn't get accepted, but then I presented the fourth time and I did get accepted with that song. So I felt like it was a really good song and worth sharing and worth pitching to this person from the publishing company. And again, I wrote down the feedback, and the feedback is as follows. The lyrics are really basic. It's really generic. It doesn't have like a twist or a turn or anything. Not that all songs have to have a twist or something. The song that you presented was just extremely generic. It would work really well for a young audience because it's so basic. It's got a limited commercial appeal. What artist would even record this? <sighs> so again, the second time in a row... We get this big music business industry gatekeeper in the room listening to all our songs, and when they listen to my song, it's pretty negative feedback, unfortunately. And they did have really positive feedback for the other students in the room. Um, again, it's mixed. They like some songs better than others. But for me, it was just mostly negative feedback, which was really shocking and kind of started to i think like start something like like start a process of me reconsidering my songwriting process but i'm going to be getting into that uh later in this episode and also in future episodes but basically it was just, it was it was hard to handle so um so, so that was that class. That, that was the highlights from that. Uh, overall, it was a great class to be in, and it was really cool to get feedback from industry people. But um, aside from being in that introduction to commercial songwriting, I was also, like I said, in a philosophy class. That took up a lot of my time because we were reading so many books by like Aristotle and Descartes and Freud and just really digging into it. And that was really, really fun, but it was also a lot of work. And... I was also just spending more time socially hanging out with my friends. You know, it's like now that I'm in the songwriting program, I don't need to spend quite as much time being as intense about writing songs outside of school. So I think I wrote like maybe three songs that entire semester, that spring semester of my freshman year. And two of them were co-writes, which was the very first time that I had ever co-written anything in Nashville. And my first co-writing session was actually with Sheer, who was a guest on my podcast in episode nine when we talked about co-writing in general. And um, that was a really cool experience. Um, unfortunately, at the time, 
you know, I was just a freshman, I didn't really know anything, and I did not take co-writing seriously at all because my mindset at the time was that, oh yeah, if I'm like sitting down with somebody in a room to write this song in about three hours, then obviously it's not going to be as good as a song that I spent over a hundred hours writing by myself, you know? So I was going into the co-writing session with the mindset that it wasn't going to turn out to be a good song. And I kind of, you know, was shooting myself in the foot by not (laughs) taking it seriously. But yeah, uh, so so that was kind of like how my second semester of college went. I also got into online dating a little bit. I went on like I think I went on three online dates and none of them ever led to a second date or anything. And at the time, I did not know that I was, you know, on the asexual and aromantic spectrums. But (laughs) that's, that's a whole other thing, a whole other topic. Anyway, the next big development in my songwriting process and the way that I thought about songwriting philosophically, the next big development was in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college. And this is when I started to develop this idea of melodic math and the way that it works best to construct the perfect melody. Um, and I'm going to still have to give a little bit more background before I just jump right into the melodic math idea, but just to give you a brief overview of how my views on songwriting changed uh, throughout the years, I have talked a bit on these stages in like more detail in previous episodes, but I just want to do like a high-level overview right now so that you can understand the context from which this is coming from. So when I started writing songs, I was a sophomore in high school, and I was just putting ideas down on paper. It was kind of haphazard. I didn't have an exact process. Sometimes it would take me like 10 hours to write a song. Sometimes it would take me like two hours. It just really depended on the context. And then when I was a junior in high school, uh, I was like, oh, wow, so all melodies come from other melodies. And if I want to construct good melodies and good lyrics and good production, then the best way to do that is to learn from other songs and to take them apart, deconstruct them, analyze what makes them work, and then apply that to my own song. So basically, oh, well, for this genre and this style, this melody goes up here and then down there. Well, I'm going to try to make my melody go up in that same way here and then go down in the same way there. And so I sort of developed that method and I honed it throughout my junior and senior year of high school. And Uh, then in the summer before college, that was when I was kind of like, wait a minute, I shouldn't do so much copying. I should be more original. I need to work on having originality, especially in my lyrics. So the, the reason why I wrote a song called Shut Your Mouth and Do Your Job was because I wanted to write a song with a really unique title about a really unique concept, which is why it's about a, a boss who gets smart mouth by her new employee and is like, well, if you're going to talk to me like that, just shut your mouth and do your job, basically. So, and I I continued keeping that idea of my songs need to be really, really original and unique. And I just sort of added that on to my previous method of, you know, deconstructing songs, analyzing them, creating these parameters, and then applying those parameters to my work. So this is where I was at, (laughs) 
basically uh, up to the point of applying to the Belmont songwriting program. Obviously, I started writing songs more quickly as I was trying to just meet those application deadlines, but I still was like, <laughs> I'm cutting corners. The way that I should be writing songs is I should be spending hundreds of hours on them, doing all these parameters and everything and making them original. But my views sort of started to change dramatically towards late spring and then summer break, again, after my freshman year of college. And what I basically started thinking about was, I have been approaching this entirely wrong. It's totally inappropriate to create these parameters that are copying these small aspects of other songs. I should not just... It doesn't work to just tack on an original title, an original song title, or an original lyric concept on top of that, because fundamentally that method is based on a flawed ideology, you know? Like, I was obviously reading a lot of Ayn Rand, and that still inspired me in a lot of different ways, and... One of the things that Anne Rand talks about a lot in her nonfiction and in her fiction is that she doesn't like people that she labels second-handers. She calls second-handers people who are irrational, who take these beliefs that don't make sense and just adopt them as their own without stopping to think about them. And she doesn't really apply that to music or art very much. Um, until you get into her book that was written specifically about art, in which she kind of addresses it. But basically, I had this epiphany in the summer of 2018, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've been writing music based on the secondhand philosophy, because I all I've been doing is copying very small aspects of other songs and putting them into my own work. I should stop just trying to blindly copy things and start actually paying attention to what the melodies are doing, what their function serves. What is the function of ending a melody on the root note of the scale as opposed to ending the melody on the second note of the scale? You know, there's that causes a different feeling depending on how you resolve the melody. So before I dive too deeply into how melodic math works and all of this, I just want to say like at a very basic level, some other examples of ways that you would write a melody or music that are based on an understanding of what are they actually doing in the song? What function do they serve? Some other examples would be, okay, well, we need to write this chorus for the song and the verses have been sort of like static. They've been hanging around on some of the same notes and they've been kind of love kind of a lower register. So in the chorus, we should, in order to make it stand out, in order to make it catchier, we should raise it up into a higher register on higher notes, and we should have the melody be more repetitious so that it's more easy to get stuck in your head. You know, it, it's not, you can get super mathematical with it, but uh, by itself, the idea that we're going to write songs based on an understanding of how the different parts work together to like build this cohesive unit. That idea itself is not is is not super intense. Um another example would be oh we want the song to be really like to capture the idea of being anxious and not knowing what's happening. So we're going to write a melody that's really really fast and the lyrics go by really really quickly and it's like like I don't know what's happening and la, 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 like that. Um or we want the song to sound really relaxed and content, so we're going to have a slower melody that sort of dips and curves around and goes up and down, but it's really slow and relaxed, you know? 
Anyway, so the idea of melodic math that I came to was strongly influenced by the book The Sense of Music, which was recommended to me by one of my philosophy professors from that class that I took in the spring semester. Uh, We did not read any of the books by this author in the class, but he recommended it to me, and so I bought The Sense of Music. Well, he recommended the author to me, and then I looked into his books and decided to get this book on my own. I got it on Amazon, and I read a good chunk of it and took very, very detailed notes and I'm, I struggle because in the scope of this podcast, you know, I know these episodes are not exactly extremely concise, but I could also make them a lot longer than they are, depending on how much detail I went into all these things. And with something like reading the book, The Sense of Music, which goes into the philosophical context of like the major scale, the minor scale, intervals melodic rhythms, like it can get very, very detailed and very, very technical. And I don't want to go all into that partially because it just would not fit in the length of this episode. And the episode is more about my personal story and how these concepts interacted in my life than like the exact technical details. And also another reason why I don't want to get too into that is because it's just frankly... I don't think everyone listening to this would care to go that deep into the details. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, Martin, I want more detail on that melodic math stuff, you can hit me up and just uh, maybe maybe I'll do another episode or maybe I can just send you some of the things, some of the materials that I prepared while I was going through all this process. But yeah, long story short, I am not going to be getting extremely detailed on this. And I know that if I was telling this to my former self, myself that used to be extremely invested in all of these things, he would be so upset. He'd be like, what? You're not going to tell all of the detail? And it's like, no, this is a story. This is not a dissertation on the science of melody. Okay, enough said. (laughs) Enough disclaimers. So what is melodic math and how did the book The Sense of Music influence my songwriting process? So basically, the the whole thing, Victor Zucker Candle, the musicologist that wrote the book, he talks about how every musical choice, every note in the melody, every rhythm, every chord, everything that you hear, whether or not it was intended to do so, it causes something to happen. It causes something to happen in the listener's head, which gives a subjective impression of how the song has meaning to them. So if you're doing, at the most basic example, a major scale... It feels very unsatisfying to just leave it hanging right here and not resolve to... You know, everyone wants it to resolve on the root note. And why is that? Why does the seventh note of the scale feel like it has so much tension, so much dissonance, even when traditionally the term dissonance only applies when you have two or more notes that are played at the same time and that feel like they have a lot of tension with each other? Like, that has a lot of dissonance, but somehow just in playing a major scale but not finishing it, it feels like there is an implied dissonance there, even though it's only just one singular note at a time. 
So the point that the author, Victor Zuckercandle, is making about music is that every single choice that you put into a melody causes some sort of reaction in the listener. He goes into this whole thing about every single note in the scale feels a little bit differently. Every note has its own unique character. The da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, the da, that has a different feeling than da. So if you start on da, da, one, five, the first note and the fifth note of the scale, the, the fifth note feels pretty resolved. The one feels absolutely resolved. The the second note of the scale, that doesn't feel resolved at all because it wants to go back to one. And the seventh note just wants to go back to the one always. So the seventh note has a lot of magnetism, like a magnetic pull that's bringing it back to the one. So th this is probably the idea of his that stuck out the most to me. There's so much more in the book, so much more that, again, like I said, I'm not getting into in this podcast episode. But what I did was, based on his descriptions of the different feelings of the different notes, I was like, that's really cool. That's really intriguing. And I can see how I could use that to write melodies. If I know the purpose of each note, then I can know how to apply them in the context of my songs. But I need to get a more precise measurement of what this actually feels like. So I went to... Uh, I, I went at looking at YouTube videos of these oscilloscopes. So an oscilloscope is a device that measures sound waves and produces a graph of the sound wave on stereotypically it's like a little square green screen that just shows like literally a sine wave. You know, all musical notes and all the frequencies can be represented by sine waves, um, at least if we're talking about pure tones that don't have any overtones attached to them. Um, so if you just play that first note of the scale, duh, then that's, you'll see like a sine wave that's going up and down really fast or slow, depending on how the oscilloscope is set. But if you play in interval, if you do, if you do those two notes at the same time, then it'll sort of look like, like, it's very hard to describe with just words, but it's kind of like a swiveling geometric figure that's kind of like a curved fish with a tail because the root note to an octave above that is um, exactly a one to two ratio. So the exact frequency, like the hertz, so the frequency of this note is 123 hertz, meaning that there's 123 cycles per second. And then the frequency of this note is 246 hertz, which is exactly double. And that relationship is true regardless of whatever note or whatever register you're working with. An octave is always doubling in frequency. And the reason it sounds like an octave is influenced because like physically that sound wave is <laughs> exactly twice the length, which is why it produces this interesting like fishtail effect on the oscilloscope. And that obviously feels very resolved. But if you then go and you play A and the G sharp above A at the same time, which is the seventh note of the scale, then <laughs> that'll be very, very crazy on the oscilloscope graph because there's like tons of lines and they're intersecting and it still looks organized, but it's a very comparatively complicated graph. So if you play 
A and then E, and E is the fifth note of the scale. It still looks a little bit more complicated, but it's a lot less, there's a lot less activity on the graph than um, in actual, you know, seventh, because <laughs> that's that's insane. So basically, I, uh, I, I charted out the graphs for every single note of the scale, every single possible interval within just, you know, the typical uh, 12 notes, you know, we have 12 steps in a chromatic scale. And I found that more or less, like there was a very strong correlation between sort of the subjective way in the book of the sense of music that Victor Zuckercandle describes the various tension relationships of the notes, how the two feels like it's has more tension because it's pulling down to the one and the seven feels like it has a lot of tension because it's going up to the eight, which is the octave above the one. Anyway, the, the graph gets more complex the more tension in the interval there is. So basically, I developed this theory that whenever you're hearing even just a single melody, it's almost as if you're hearing all of these intervals already because you're always comparing each subsequent note in relationship to the root note of the scale. The root note being the very first note in the scale that every other note is based on. I apologize if this is getting too in the weeds. For those of you that are not musicians, I said this wouldn't be too technical. I promise you, I promise you I could go even more technical than this. Notice I'm not talking about the mathematical equation that generates the sine wave in order to produce that graph. I'm not not even going there. <laughs> um, anyway, to sort of like just connect this to how I was writing my songs. So I was saying, okay, so each... Each note in a melody is basically like you're hearing that interval intuitively. You're comparing each note to the one of the scale, which is why all of these relationships make sense. And mathematically, the notes that are more dissonant with the root notes feel like they are less resolved. And music, as musicians love to say, is all about tension and release. You have a fast section of a song and it's really, really tense and then it slows down and we experience a resolution. Or we have really dissonant chords and then we go to resolved chords, like a 5-1 cadence. So I basically concluded that in order to write my melodies from an understanding of how the notes are working and how they're producing a pleasing sound, I need to specifically write them so that they follow... In intelligible patterns of tension and release. And I used these mathematical relationships of the different notes and the different intervals from those graphs, and I used that in order to construct meaningful melodies, or at least what I presumed would be a meaningful melody based on this framework of understanding melodies. So before I even put pen to paper, I wanted to apply some of these ideas in regards to analyzing melodies at their most basic example. I analyzed children's nursery rhymes in relationship to how they experience tension and resolution with these mathematical relationships. Just to, you know, like pop songs can be very complex melodically, especially because the lyrics can be really fast and have a lot of slang or whatever, and that does actually influence how the melody is constructed. So if we just use nursery rhymes, which some of them are literally just folk songs that people have been singing for hundreds of years. 
uh, that will hopefully be a clearer, more simple example of these philosophies in practice. Um, and again, I absolutely was not making the argument that people were using these melodic mathematical relationships while writing the nursery rhymes originally. Um, obviously, so many melodies are not written like that. You know, people just, they like a tune, it comes to them. But my whole argument was that whether a songwriter or a composer is aware of it or not, they are writing melodies that have these mathematical relationships. Because even if you know nothing about music theory, just singing a melody, putting down a melody that fits within a scale already has, by the very nature of it being a melody and landing on those notes, it has all of these relationships. They're all going on. It's all math that's affecting the way the sine waves are coming into your brain and being interpreted and deconstructed. And even if neither the creator nor the listener is aware of what's going on, all of this is at play always. And therefore, it can only help the composer or the songwriter to be conscious about what they're doing and the way that they can construct these. So when I was analyzing the nursery rhymes, it was just to understand how a basic melody can work. And to give a very brief illustration of the way that I applied this framework of analyzing melodies to a nursery rhyme, take, for instance, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. So the very first phrase of the melody, it goes... So we start on the very root note of the scale, the C, and then we go up to the G, A, G. So that first note establishes, okay, C is our starting point. That feels like the very beginning of the scale, and that feels resolved. And then it ends, that very first melodic phrase ends on the G, which feels somewhat resolved, but not completely resolved, because it doesn't feel as complete as it would if it were to just go back to the one. But lo and behold, in the end of the song, at the very end of the song, after going through some of the other melodic phrases, We return back to the C, the root note, and it feels like we've reached this destination, this sense of resolution. So basically the G in the middle of the melody, where it's kind of like pausing temporarily on that G, that feels like this incomplete sense of resolution, but then finally at the end we do return to the C. And so basically, depending on the degree to which a tone feels resolved in the melody, it creates a different sense of where the melody is headed. And overall, the transitions through the different tones that feel more or less resolved tells the overall picture, the story of the melody as it's flowing, as it's hitting the listener's ear. This was how I conceptualized melodies. So after I analyzed Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and I also analyzed other nursery rhymes, I started writing my own nursery rhymes because before I was going to write any popular or commercial songs, I just wanted to practice not just using this to analyze other songs, but to how I can do it myself, you know, which is very important. Um, and it was not like I was, you know, writing down exact ways that I was going to copy the nursery rhymes like I had been doing before, but it was more like, this is how you construct a nursery rhyme in general, you know? 
Um, so, so why don't we listen to one of the nursery rhymes that I wrote myself based on all of this melodic work? Um, I wrote a few, uh, not sure which would be the best to play in the podcast. Um, uh, let's do this one. Uh, this is called The Cheese. It's about an argument between two siblings because one of them thinks that the other stole the cheese. Jenny scurried to her mother. She said, I don't like my brother. I would trade him for another. He ate my cheese. Danny said, my sister's lying. Please don't listen to her crying. Jenny said, he's just denying. He ate my cheese. It's kind of crazy looking back at this, how I spent so much time and energy developing this new method of melodic math, which I thought was so revolutionary. And then the product of all of that scientific thinking is this (laughs) ridiculous nursery rhyme. But that being said, this was all a means to an end. I was practicing this method, analyzing these nursery rhymes, and then writing some of my own. But it was all, of course, leading to another serious songwriting project, which was actually supposed to be a commercial pop song. And I used these melodic techniques. And now I'm I'm not going to go into very much detail at all on the actual writing process of this song. But It's just enough to say that I did use these techniques with the melodic math. So basically, uh, after spending multiple weeks going through and figuring out the science of melody, I decided to write a top line for this instrumental EDM track written by a guy from my high school. His name is Mitchell Prisby. Um, Fantastic producer. Um, He just makes really, really good stuff, and he's put up some of his instrumentals on SoundCloud. And I actually listened to one of the instrumentals, and I was like, this is so good. I should write lyrics for this. So I got his permission, and well, I might have written the song and then showed it to him. I forget the progression of events here. But anyway, I wrote a melody and lyrics for his track, and then got that recorded by um, another singer. Anyway, um, so this is the song that I wrote with all of these melodic techniques. It took me about 80 hours in total to write it, which 80 hours is a lot of time, yes, but it's also quite a bit less than 350 hours. And one of the things that I was really proud about this new songwriting method was that it was more efficient. It was literally more efficient than my method where I analyze, deconstruct, create all these parameters and basically copy all these little tiny things. You know, if I'm working from the perspective of I just need to make the notes work and do what they're supposed to do, then I don't need to waste so much time just, you know, endlessly analyzing other songs. So that's why it only took 80 hours. And I was really, really proud of it. I still felt like this was probably the best song that I'd written to the day. Uh, So the song is called Soaring Down. It is about going skydiving because I was still wanting to write about extremely unique and original songwriting topics. (laughs) And here this is. I'm gonna jump, this is insane Why don't I go, I'll be okay I'm not alone, just look down 
So I think it was really notable because at the time I was writing the song and especially listening back to it, it was the very first time I had experienced ever writing something that gave myself chills. You know, I did a whole episode about chills with my friend Bobby and how it's like, at least for me, it feels like sometimes if I'm getting chills, then that means that I really, really like it. And that's a really, really good song for me to listen to. Um, So the fact that you know, I'd been listening to so many songs just casually and they had been giving me chills, but I'd never written a song myself that gave me chills until this moment. Like that just felt really, really profound to me. And it felt like, this is so cool. So I'm using all of these really mathematical concepts, but then I'm applying them and the result is giving me chills. It's this scientific mathematical concept that is producing an emotional, physiological reaction in me. That is amazing. I cannot believe that it's working so well. And then, obviously, uh, I was going to use this method again for my next song. So uh, I spent most of the summer before my sophomore year of college, I spent most of the summer just figuring out and doing all of this melodic research and analysis and then writing the song Soaring Down. But in the beginning of my sophomore year, so this is the now the fall semester, I spent 90 hours writing a song called Refugees. Um, this was supposed to be an R&B song because I wanted to try and imitate that genre. And I did have to do some, you know, analyses and like figure out, okay, what is it about R&B songs that make them work? But those analyses were not as in-depth or as detailed as what I'd been doing uh, previously because I was like, well, I know how melodies work now. And a melody that works is going to have the same sorts of functions regardless of what the genre of the song is. So I wrote this song. I was pretty proud of it but not as proud of it as soaring down and it didn't give me chills (laughs) unfortunately um and then when i showed it to the guy who uh, i had met in my philosophy class and i wanted him to sing the song he didn't like it he didn't think it was like a true r&b song and he told me that you know if we just sit down with it and start working on it we can make it more R&B just together. So in about five hours at his apartment, we ended up changing almost the entire song. Like the core structure of it was the same and the chorus was mostly the same, but we totally redesigned the melody primarily and changed a lot of lyrics around. And it was the melody that I had spent so much time working on with my, with my melodic math methodology. And it was just like, really a bummer because I came up off of this high of writing Soaring Down and being like, this is the ultimate expression of what I'm trying to do, to then writing the song that took me a little bit more time to write, again, 90 hours versus 80 hours. And it just kind of fell flat. And whereas with Soaring Down, I was really proud of it and I released it on streaming platforms. Refugees never went anywhere. I did not even like it enough to put it out myself but I will still play you a little clip of it because that's what this podcast is all about, playing clips of things from my past. So this is a little clip from the demo that I made before bringing it to the singer. Are you down to be 
this is a little clip of what it sounded like after rewriting it with the singer. Are you down to be refugees? Are you down to be refugees? Are you down? Are you down? So I would say that the song actually improved dramatically after I brought it and worked on it with him, but still, at the time, I was very stubborn and did not want to admit to myself that it was an improvement because I'd already spent 90 hours working on the other version myself and then just a mere five hours changing it with him. It just felt like I was going back on everything that I'd planned out, all of my analyses, all of my melodic math that I was just throwing it away in favor of this version that he just spontaneously came up with all of these melodies and it just kind of felt like it was wrecking the point (sighs) it it was it was a frustrating experience overall I mean I didn't really enjoy either version enough to really pursue it or do anything more with the song and then shortly after this all happened I towards the end of September I ended up having a conversation with one of the songwriting majors that I met while I was touring Belmont before I had decided to go there that totally changed my mind about everything and caused me to question everything and actually give up melodic math. I only ever used melodic math to write these two songs, Soaring Down and Refugees, and after that I just gave it up. Why did I give it up after being so certain about it? (sighs) That will be revealed in the next episode. Um, What caused me to completely do a complete 180 in terms of songwriting? Oh, that'll be that'll be a fun episode. Please look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, what do I see? I see lights. I just got lights for my new room. String lights. They're forty-eight feet long. Forty-eight feet worth of little white string lights, and it just makes me so happy to have them strung up in my room. And it feels a lot more like home now because I'm not just using the overhead light. Um, yeah, really fun. Um, stay tuned for the next episode. Be safe, be stay well, uh, do everything you need to do, and until next time.